You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we're wrapping up our monthly look at abortion. And, phew, what has changed in a week's time here? We had Christopher Kegzer on, he did a great job, but now we've seen one week of a Trump presidency, and it looks like for pro-life movement, has gained a shot in my arm or such. We've even had a vice president speak for the first time at a March for Life. And we're hearing talk about defunding Planned Parenthood. There's a lot of news stories out there. And to talk about some of those, I've got my friend Brian Johnson on here. Now, Brian, I actually didn't get that bio from you because in some ways you were kind of panicked weren't you, when I talked about being an academic bio, right? Well, yeah. I mean, when you're not very smart, of course you don't want to give up an academic bio. There isn't much to write. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not going to say you're not smart. <laughs> we'll leave that for the audience to decide. <laughs> but you really, you're really someone coming on the show who doesn't really have an academic background of a, with a degree or anything, right? Yeah, I mean, I have a um, I have a master's degree, but my master's degree is in music from the University of Wyoming. The apologetic stuff I've done consists of just courses and stuff that I've taken online with Biola, but I don't have an actual degree from any school. I'm not out of a seminary or anything like that. What I have learned is all self-taught over the last 10, 15 years. If it's any comfort, before I went to seminary, pretty much anything I learned in the area of apologetics was self-taught as well, and yet somehow when I got to seminary, I was able to function pretty darn well there, so you can learn a lot being self-taught. Yeah, I would I would like, I, I like to think so. I mean, most everything that I've picked up, I'm kind of a science geek. That's more or less my angle. So within the group that I uh, represent, I'm kind of the science guy within the group, and most everything I've learned there also, once again, didn't come from a degree, just came from being self-taught, but I think what you learn over the years is that Oh, I don't need to have a PhD in mathematics to know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and I don't care if the guy that fixes my car is a PhD in electrical engineering or mechanical engineering. As long as he knows how to fix the car, that's good enough for me. So sometimes you don't uh, – the degrees are helpful. They're really great. I think they give you a much more in-depth personal view of things, but not always necessary for a lot of the things that we get to talk about. So in that ter- in, in that term, in those types of terms, what I really like about – Actually, to be honest, what I really like about not necessarily having a degree of any kind is it kind of makes me a bit more relatable to people. They don't feel like they need 
a degree in seminary or a PhD in, from Biola. Not saying don't go get that. I'm just saying that if you don't have that, it, it makes you a lot more approachable, I think, because they're like, oh, well, if he can do it, maybe I can too and, and not have to go through years of schooling. So how did you get to be doing what you're doing today? Well, like I said, mine was um, kind of came from a scientific background. I went was born and raised a Lutheran. And my uh, uh, parents did a very good job of making me go to church every Sunday. I uh, did that for a number of years till I went to college. And when I got to college, then, of course, there's a lot of freedom there. There's nobody to wake you up and tell you to go to church or tell you to do this or tell you to do that. And it's very freeing. But uh, in the meantime, my college professors were giving me information uh, on the cosmos and biology and such. And when I came out of college... I had questions. I wouldn't say that I wasn't a Christian, but I would say that I was definitely uh, questioning what I believed. But being a person that I've always tried to be very uh, open-minded, very objective, and I recognized that I never had really given Christianity a chance. I hadn't given it a fair shake, never really looked at the evidence for it. So when I started looking into the evidence for it, um, I, I kind of started with the scientific side. Is there evidence for Noah's flood? Is there any scientific evidence to support the Bible and what's said in it? And the more and more I learned, to be honest, the more angry I got. I got physically, literally angry at, at things that I would learn only because it was stuff that I had never been told and never been taught in college. And had I been given, quote unquote, the other side of the story in college, it wouldn't have a it wouldn't have affected my faith the way it had. And so that was what really made me passionate on the topic. And then, of course, scientific endeavors led to philosophical endeavors, which led to the logic and reason side of things and um, have just been absolutely emboldened by what I've learned. So when I really, truly understood why I believe what I believe, it emboldened me to to speak out more about my faith as opposed to, you know, I don't, yeah, I'm a Christian, I guess, but you know, I don't, what's good for you? You know, I, I guess I'll be a Christian and you can be whatever. And we, you know, we'll talk about it. But when I learned the truth, when I figured out that Christianity over all of them was true, it absolutely emboldened me in my faith. And then I couldn't wait to tell other people. So it led then, of course, into ambassadorship and discipleship and and on to uh, uh, other such endeavors. You know, when you were telling your story, something struck out to me about how you got angry because your college education didn't tell you the other side of the issue. And I was thinking, so I'm guessing that means, sadly, your church didn't tell you the right side of the issue either. That's absolutely correct. It was a very, it was a good church, but it wasn't a very educational church. That's, the, I think, the best way to put it. You went to, if you haven't been, I, I currently attend a Wesleyan church, and so we spend a good half an hour uh, or so on a sermon. Other people out there are like, half an hour, that's it? Uh, you know, they might spend 45 minutes, an hour plus in their church on the sermon. In the Lutheran way, it was a um, – we were a Missouri Senate Lutheran, and you got like 10 minutes 
And if you went much past 10 minutes on your sermon, the natives got restless and they started to kind of move around and jostle. And you had to kind of keep your your services to about an hour. That was about all that the Lutherans, at least in my area here in Rapid City, South Dakota, that was about all that was really kind of allowed, quote unquote, by the congregation. So there isn't a lot of education you can impart on people within a 10-minute time frame, plus the Sunday schools and stuff weren't deep into the educational side of it either. Um, it was more status quo, you, you, catechism, that type of stuff, memorize, repeat, but nothing in terms of what I would consider apologetic in the way that we all think of apologetics, which is really unfortunate. Well, when I lived in Knoxville, Ari and I did attend a church that was Lutheran, Missouri Synod, and it wasn't like that at all. We were able to spend time on a sermon. In fact, I've had the pastor of that church come on my show before because we'd have things like during a sermon, you could text in questions you had about the sermon, and they would be answered at the end of a sermon. And there was actually a, a Bible class that was taught once, and they did do a project, like how we got the Bible and such. And I was seeing they were just salivating the whole time. Yes, fine. I remember messaging my roommate from seminary once during a church service and said, I can't believe it. I'm hearing a sermon about the conquest of the Canaanites. I've never heard this before. <laughs> that's such that's such a stark difference from what we have up here uh, where I'm at. It's very much more routine, uh, stick by the book. As a matter of fact, my parents still attend that same church uh, as they have now since like 67, 68. And uh, the, the new pastor – and you're going to love this. This is really – this is great. The new pastor finally, finally started bringing up politics from the pulpit, <laughs> which is which is such a step outside of the boundaries that had been there in the previous you know, 40, 50 years or whatever. It, you just didn't talk about the controversial subjects. It was a lot of, you know what? Jesus loves you. Just You just remember that. Just remember that that Jesus guy, he really loves you, and he loves the people around you. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs> that was kind of how that was. <laughs> Before we jump into the abortion topic here, I mean, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about what you were saying here. I mean, you heard all this stuff about Jesus loves you and such. When you went off to college and you started having these doubts because of these questions people threw at you, how much good did all that talk do you? Oh, that's a great question. Okay, so the routine that my parents had built into me of going to church almost every Sunday on a regular basis, the socializing that I had done while I attended church in terms of Wednesday youth and sleepovers and lock-ins and, and such that we did, those, of course, stayed with me because I enjoyed church from a social aspect. The idea of God, the Bible, Jesus loves you type of stuff really didn't play much of a part in my life while I was in college because, let's be honest, when you've been living at home your whole life and you go away and you're five hours from home and your parents can't pop in at any given moment and you can make the decisions for yourself, really, who wants God? He's just kind of in the way of what your flesh wants to do, and that is – drinking on the weekends, 
and doing stuff that um, you would not ever maybe try to get away with at home, but without anybody there to tell you to knock it off, of in, course. In, in the that. modern parlance, and I don't mean to equate these three together, but that's where you should go sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, really. That that boils it down uh, almost perfectly, to be quite honest. And and in order to accomplish what your flesh wants to do, that whole God guy just gets in the way. You need to get rid of him. And that's exactly what I did a lot with my with my college life. So the whole Jesus loves you type thing was always with me. I never considered myself not a Christian, I guess, while I was in college. But I was definitely, without a doubt, a cafeteria Christian. I'll just take a dose of this because I like Jesus and, and his love. But I don't know. This other stuff over here, I don't know if that's really what he meant. It's just all kinds of the typical rationalization you find out there. So, yeah, You know, I'm going to bet that sadly, with how the story turns out, you're an exception because a lot of students were hearing the exact same thing you were hearing. And they weren't bothering to go check the other side. It, it, and that's that's more true than not. I mean, I'm an anomaly in that case. Uh, I'm even an anomaly. We are, I should say, not me, but we are. Even the people listening to this podcast, you're special. And you're special because you all know that the people around you just don't get that involved in why they believe what they believe. My wife is one where she just knows that she knows that she knows. She doesn't need to understand the moral argument. That's not that's not in her wheelhouse. She doesn't really care to know about the moral argument. She just knows that she knows that she knows. Now, that's not to say she isn't any less or more saved than I am, but it it always confounds me probably because I am who I am and we are who we are as apologists that more people aren't interested in knowing why they believe what they believe they're so much more interested in what the new season of some television show brings rather than hey this place that we might spend eternity in yeah that would be kind of cool to know about before you get there <laughs> and, and so, yeah, a very, a very interesting aspect. You're right there, Nick, where most people, not just kids that go to college, but people in general, don't have quite the passion for knowing why they believe what they believe. Um, and then you tell them and you start giving them some stuff. And I, I do find, though, that a lot of them are like, that is really, really cool. So they do enjoy it, but Unlike me, who's involved with it on, on basically an everyday basis, I can't get enough of it. Um, you know, they can only take it in doses of once a week or so. But so yeah, but let, let's ask you this then about the whole thing. Also, do you think if your church had told you these kinds of things before you went off to college, you would have had a whole lot better experience? Without without a doubt, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, had I known this kind of stuff, I've always loved the intellectual side of things. Um, you know, just the total geek in high school. Yeah. You know, I had a lot of the guys I hung out with were good looking, but I was not. So I was like, <laughs> I was like the third wheel, you know, I was, I was, I was the guy who those girls would call and go, so is, is Nathan seen anyone right now? Could you like talk to him about me? I was that guy. That was me. <laughs> okay. My next question: Were we separated at birth somehow? 
<laughs> that was that was who I was. I was uh, I was always in friend zone. <laughs> I, I never got out of the friend zone when I was in high school. But uh, it, in that in that respect, then actually it was really good. It kept me from getting in a lot of trouble. And then of course I was always into the you know the intellectual type stuff. And I like discussion. I like debate. I like conversation. Um, had I been introduced to this seventh, eighth, ninth grade, it through my uh, church apologetics classes, courses, that type of stuff. Oh yeah. When I went to college, I would have actually loved to engage then with people about why they believe what they believe. It would have absolutely changed most of my college experience. Um, had I just been exposed to this. And, and then, of course, I think that's a big part of why I'm so passionate about the kids even today is I want them to know this going into college. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, if I could talk a little bit about my own experience here because it's so related and then we'll jump into a topic of abortion. Is that I was that nerdy guy also. I mean, when I was in high school, I pretty much skipped lunch break every time <sighs> because... <sighs> I was going to play Magic the Gathering with my friends in the library the whole time. Yes, that's all we did. And then I'd come home and I'd play video games all day long. And then I'd go to school and I'd still pass everything. Very, very easy. I even got elected most studious in high school, which really surprised me because technically I never studied. But at the same time, you know, still an intellectual in my life, and I never knew how you could apply that to Christianity. No one ever said anything about it to me. And it just gets me upset when I think back, because I look back, like, all those years I could have been studying and learning this stuff and being prepared in advance, and no one bothered to say anything. It, it, it's uh, And I talk to kids now, and I'm and who doesn't love to try to stick it to the establishment, especially when you're in high school, right? That's what kids do. And so if you can bring up something, if I can bring up something about the cosmological argument and teach them just the cosmological argument, kids come to me after they've been back to school and you know, raise their hand and ask the teacher, you know, where did the singularity come from? How did the beginning of the universe begin? They, they almost feel emboldened. Because in most cases, the teacher – actually, in all cases so far, the teacher's never been able to give them an answer. And they, of course, don't necessarily come away going, aha, got you, teacher. It's more like, yeah, this confirms what that guy said at my church about God is a really good cause for the beginning of the universe. Because here is my science teacher who's got a – a degree in this, and he's been given an opportunity to respond, and he can't. And so it emboldens them as well. And Nick, you and I both know that had we had that kind of confidence coming out of high school, um, I know for a fact that me personally would not have been near as shaken when I went to college. You know, it's interesting you use the term the establishment, because that's been in politics a lot lately. The establishment has been shook up recently hasn't it absolutely yeah and it's uh it's something that people have wanted to do but never had the power within just themselves to make that happen 
Um, and and that of course changed with this presidency, who basically that was a huge part of his candidacy was sticking it to the establishment. And I think that's one of the many reasons why he resonated with people so much. Yeah, I think a lot of the reasons why he was so popular among people is he was going out there and he was saying the things everyone was wanting to say for the most part, and he wasn't scared of offending people. I mean, just think about that that press conference he had recently with the media and telling CNN, no, I'm not going to answer one of your questions. You're fake news. <laughs> yeah. So many people out there would say, yes, we've been saying that for so long. Yeah, it's uh, but but those people, like as you're saying, they 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 never had the microphone. They were never allowed to have the microphone, and so he was our microphone when it came to that. Now, I'm not sure I would have been quite as brash as he was in some cases on on the campaign trail, but I, oh, if I'm being honest, yeah, well, what he said was like, yeah, say it, Trump. You know, I don't know if I would have said it that way, but hey. You know, he he spoke for us when he when they said the forgotten or whatever. There really was a lot of truth to that. He was the microphone for a lot of the forgotten flyover states where people like you and I. And I'll be honest, I wasn't a Trump fan. He was not my first choice. Um, I, I there were I what I thought better candidates. And I was amazed he was as popular as he was. But when push came to shove, and I was standing there in the booth. I did what I found out later almost all of my evangelical friends did, and that was I didn't so much vote for Trump as I voted against Hillary. And I knew he had the best chance to beat her, and although I wasn't sure exactly what we would get with him, I knew precisely what we would get with Hillary, and I knew that wasn't – I knew I couldn't in good conscience vote for that, so – so yeah, he ended up, and now of course that he's in office and he's doing what he's done. I'm becoming a bigger fan every single day. But uh, yeah, it was interesting to see him stand up and say the things that we all wanted to say, but didn't have a microphone. Nobody heard us when we said it. So yeah, that's a good point. Since you brought up Hillary, and this is something I asked Christopher Cakes about, and if you've ever guessed, I think. Um, what were you thinking? I mean, did you watch the third debate? Yes. Okay. What were you thinking? when Trump actually got Hillary to not only describe partial birth abortion on a live stage, but defend it? Uh, um, well, uh, like everybody else, it, like, oh, well, like anybody who's pro-life, I was disgusted by that. I was, I, I couldn't believe that she would be in favor of something like that. But the bigger part of me was like, why not? How did you? How would anybody not see that coming? Obama made it very clear where he stood on the issue. I'm not sure that in his tenure in government he ever voted pro-life. I don't think he did. I, I think he always voted pro-choice. So his stance was always very much out in the open. Hillary was kind of it, more or less a carbon copy of that, and. So it wasn't a surprise to hear her try to defend that because that's what her party wanted her to say. That's what her party wanted to hear. I think what it really what really spoke to me was I knew that what she said and defending that idea was being echoed 
by a lot of the people that were following her. And in my mind, I'm like, have you even stopped to consider for five seconds what you're actually saying when – I mean you can maybe try to rationalize, okay, it's just a cell. It's just a zygote, blah, blah, blah. But how do you rationalize a fully formed human, clearly a human, no doubt it's a human – Oh yeah, go ahead and kill that thing. It's all right. We're good with that. I that's the part that man, you want to talk about Satan incarnate. It's stuff like that that reminds me all the time about the evil that exists in the world. And it's not just in the Middle East in terms of what the Muslims and the and uh some of the uh bombers are doing over there. It it's right here all around us in the United States and we're killing our children. And a lot of people are like, Hey, you know what? It's a choice. If it's a choice, that's, that's law. I don't know what, and they don't, I I think Nick, that's the biggest part of this whole abortion thing that blows me away is how in your mind do you rationalize that just because it's law or just because, in, in in terms of women's rights, how do you rationalize that within yourself and not see what you're really saying in terms of ending the life of a human, the most innocent human, the smallest of all humans? They'll cry. The pro-choice people will cry and lament when people are blown up in a in a bar or down in Miami and then go – but the unborn, yeah, meh, whatever. It's fine. Hey, you know what? If you can't afford them, just get rid of them. It's cool. You want to go to college and you can't afford a baby? Yeah, no, no, no. We get that. We get that. Go ahead. Just uh, do what you got to do. I don't understand from a logical perspective how you can get from – how you can get sorrow out of one circumstance and total indifference out of another. Have you ever thought about that, Nick? I mean what are your thoughts on that? Actually, I was thinking that uh, when you do not have these, uh, if I get upset about a bar being shot up and such, I mean, that's understandable. We should, but I mean, more, actually, a lot of them will cry over the death of animals. For instance, yeah. say, Harambe the gorilla or Cesar the lion, but care nothing about the unborn. And I, I think the thing, how I answer this, we've just in our hearts that we've allowed ourselves to be con- convinced that this isn't a human and I think the reason we've already done it is in service of a great God sex. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. How about how about this angle? Ha- um, do you feel um, look at me turn this podcast around. Now I'm going to interview you. This. <laughs> how, do you feel that sometimes people choose to take on the pro-choice position, not because they don't recognize what they're really saying, but because th- that is what Democrats believe, dang it. And if I'm going to be a Democrat, then that is what I have to believe, and I don't want to be voted off the island from my friends. Do you think that plays into it at all? I'm glad you changed it to think instead of fear. I, I, I get very big on that one. And such, but yeah, I think sometimes group think 
can be a great reality that everyone wants to jump on the bandwagon, as it were. Now, as me, I've tried to denounce people in my own party doing things that I think are incorrect and such. I've, uh, I've had people send me these news stories when Obama was in office about all these things he was doing. I check every time. They were false. I sent out retractions to everyone who got the story that I never sent by way, but other people sent and said, don't share this. This is a fake story. Hmm. Hmm. That's excellent. Yeah. So, and, and, and it has to go both ways. I mean, if we're going to hold ourselves to one standard, it's not fair that we hold everybody else to a different standard. I think that gets lost on society today. I'm not even sure most people know that they're putting out a double standard in terms of that. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I've always wondered if party affiliation makes a big difference in that that group think, like you said, if it, you know, if I'm going to be a Democrat, then I have to think this way. And I, I've, I've done all I can online, at least. I don't have a lot of liberal Democrat friends on Facebook anymore. They've all blocked me by now. But I, to the ones that are left, I've tried to explain to them in, in, and I don't try to get abrasive with them, and I don't try to engage in really mean rhetoric with them. I do try to engage in love and compassion with these people. And I've tried to explain, you do know you can be a Democrat and pro-life. It's okay. I mean, that's not disallowed in this world today. And I think I'm getting some of them to change their their, their ideas. But I just wondered if you had a perspective on maybe and, – and like I'm in South Dakota. We're a pretty conservative state here. I don't know exactly where you're at or, or what the Georgia general feeling is. conservative. OK, very good. So do you find though that maybe with some of your – if you have Democratic friends that – I just sometimes feel like the only reason they hang on to the pro-choice position is because they don't want to be voted off the island by their friends. I find that many times that they really haven't thought about the issue. I have – it's coming on for months. Well, I think it was like his sister or something, and we were trying to have a dialogue about abortion. She said, "Look, you're not going to change my mind. I'm not going to change your mind." That's why I said, "No, no. Look, if you can provide me evidence that I am wrong, I will change my mind." <laughs> Where you do the same thing. That was a few days ago. I'm still waiting to hear a reply back. I love apologists. I love apologists because we're. People don't get this. Uh, you know, atheists call themselves free thinkers, which obviously it is a oxymoron. But yeah, exactly. And and I always think to myself, man, if there's anybody that I truly find to be the most free thinking, it's actually Christian apologists. We're like the consummate skeptics. We're like, listen, if I find out because they're like, oh, you'll never, you're just stuck in your beliefs, and you're just, you're never going to change from being a Christian. And I say that is not true. If I found out tomorrow that Christianity wasn't true, I'd drop it. I drop it. I, I just want to believe what's true. So it's it's interesting that you're right. You have people that will tell you, you're not going to change my mind, and I'm not going to change yours. And you come back with, well, yeah, you can totally change my mind. Just give me evidence that I'm wrong, and I will, and I will change my mind. And I think you, you, you really hit the nail on the head with that one. It's it's us apologet, apologetics that are that are always, yeah. Listen, you provide me with evidence. Sure, I'll change my position. I don't. I just want the truth. <laughs> so let me ask you this about going back to what Hillary said here. I mean, but Hillary said that sometimes these procedures are necessary for the health of a mother. I mean, 
shouldn't we save him in for the sake of the health of a mother? Oh, okay, yeah. So if there's any one if there's any one argument about abortion that I would side with people on, it comes down to not necessarily always the health of the mother, because that seems a little arbitrary or could be construed arbitrary at times, but the life of the mother. If it was definitely one over the other, it's do this or the mother dies type of situation, then I think you definitely have to – I would say you let the family decide what they want to do with that. But it's a different situation than most abortions from the perspective of now you're talking about one life over another life. Whereas in all the other abortion scenarios, it's just one life. It's the life of the baby, and that's that's all you're talking about. We're going to take the life of the baby for X, Y, and Z reasons. Uh, if you guys want a good pot, you can listen to Chris, that podcast you've done with the other, it was Chris. And who'd you do first? Ty? Was it Ty? Ty Binbo came first, followed by Elijah Thompson and then Chris for Kickstarter. Okay. So those guys were brilliant. They did fantastic work. And so obviously you can break down about any other argument that comes at you with, well, abortion is, is okay if fill in the blank. Except in this one case you just brought up, the life of the mother. Now, maybe not the health of the mother, but the life of the mother. And that is because it's a different scenario. You're talking about the life of one over the life of another, and that's a, that's, that's a different perspective. So, But Brian, here we seem to be saying that sometimes what we call partial birth abortion is necessary for the life of another. Is that true? Well, well to be honest um, – I have never heard of a single case where a mother has carried a baby basically full term, and then at the very, very end, it ended up, well, you know, it's one or the other. You got to make your decision. Uh, I'm not aware of any of those situations. So once again, I mean, we go back to how people rationalize why they want to do what they want to do. I think that's exactly what Hillary was trying to pull off there. I'm not personally familiar with anything. That's not to say that's never happened in the history of Evers, and I'm not a doctor that's involved with that kind of scenario. But I know from the outside looking in, I don't think there's ever been a case where, I mean, I mean, you know, kind of once it's halfway out, you're on your way. I don't know what else you really need there. I think there are even a number of gynecologists who spoke about that and said, sorry, not in our practice, that doesn't happen. <laughs> So, yeah, so once again, you're back to kind of a subjective look. Uh, and you know what? Okay, this is what it really boils down to is I just don't think Hillary's really all that educated on the topic, period. Right. If I'm just going to call a spade a spade and we're just going to be honest here, I, I really don't believe Hillary is completely educated on what she's speaking about when it comes to the abortion issue. I think if it was broken down to her and she could sit down with someone like a, a Chris or a Ty or an Alan Schleeman from Stand to Reason or whatever and, and discuss this thing, I think she'd come away with a different view. But um, yeah, to, to make that kind of a comment, boy, I don't know how she could ever back that up. Now, let's uh, go to some recent events. Now, we've had Trump get in office. A lot of people were skeptical. Now, I think it was <clears throat> the day after the inauguration, you had a women's protest march going on 
what was going on at this march exactly? Okay, so the women's march that they had, I think, was painted to be more of a pro-choice type of a march. Now, I spoke with some Democratic friends of mine, and I asked them, I says, is that is that all that it's about? And they were like, no, actually, it's about a bunch of different things. Some women were walking in favor of women's rights and pro-choice. Some women walked simply in terms of protest for the new president, Trump, and others had their own agenda. So the march that happened wasn't just a pro-choice march. It was a bunch of different women marching for a bunch of different reasons. And some of those reasons had a lot to do with, we don't like Trump. Um, It's whatever, fill in the blanks. The president is not legitimate and he's not our president. Mm-hmm. Well, I have heard that there were some pro-life women that weren't allowed to participate in the march because they were pro-life. Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> this is this is some of the you know what we go back to, and, and golly, I I don't want to paint this with a broad brush, but this is by all rights, this is kind of the liberal agenda. And I, I hate to just, like I said, paint that with a broad brush. It's not every liberal. Uh, the Republicans do it too. The conservatives are, can be in that exact same boat, maybe not to the extent of the liberals. But this isn't, this isn't really a, a big surprise for them to oust the pro-life groups from walking with the pro-choice women. Um, they, they're very divisive in the way that they construct these kinds of protests and the way they construct these kinds of outreaches, if you will, from the uh, liberal side. I don't think, obviously, I don't think anybody would feel that's fair. If the pro-life people didn't want the pro-choice people walking with them, I think there'd be a huge uproar about that, and you'd hear a lot of backlash on that. But I'm not. that's not to say that the pro-life marchers maybe didn't turn away pro-choice people and said, listen, this isn't your day. Your day was last week. This is our day. Just leave us alone. We don't want you to be a part of it. So to be honest, if I'm going to be critical about this, I was not in favor of the pro-choice people leaving out the pro-life singers or the pro-life participants. But that's because I'm pro-life. However, if I break it down, yeah, you know, I'm not so sure they didn't have a point if I'm being fair in terms of the pro-life walk was the following week and it wasn't your day. And we don't, we weren't there to see how they were turned away. Were they like shoved to the ground and beaten with pro-choice signs or were they politely asked, you know what, it's just – this isn't – really your day. Why don't you come back next week and walk with the pro-life people? And, and if that's how it was presented, I think it's, it's very fair. So it's a, it's a, it's a good story. It's a good narrative to, to talk about. But I think if we're going to consider ourselves, and I do, I hold, a, I hold Christians to a higher standard and I hold apologists to an even higher standard. And if we're going to talk about being objective and being fair and looking at both sides of the argument – then I think that's what we need to do, even when that isn't our side of the argument. And it maybe goes away from what we would hope they would do. I think we have to be careful of that double standard. So, I remember hearing some clips from a rally the other day talking about how they wanted 
things paid for and such. He's saying, like, why is it that you men can get your Rogaine and your Viagra covered, but the government can't buy me, me, me um, tampons and contraceptives and such? And probably saying, well, last I checked, I think contraceptives can be covered under most medical plans. That's, to my knowledge, that's exactly what's covered under um, the, the plans themselves. Uh, who chooses that and why they choose what they choose is beyond me. Um, I, I'll be honest, I'm not so sure that men shouldn't be paying for their own Rogaine and their own Viagra. Um, I think that's it, not every man has those problems. And so I, I can, once again, I can see that side of the argument. Um, but I think in terms of what's being paid for and what's not being paid for, I mean, it's a little different when you're asking a Catholic church to pay for Rogaine or you're asking them to pay for condoms. Right. You know, I think we, we have to kind of balance what exactly is being asked to be taken care of here. But uh, yeah, I mean, o- overall, I, I don't know who decides what gets paid by what. I, I, then I, anyway, I would say that that argument wouldn't go back to one of us. I mean, you have to take that back to the, the government or whoever makes those decisions. Yeah, and what, what are we to think when we see what's going on? I mean, a lot of people are saying, we're seeing the true sabbies right now because you have women marching out there dressed up like female genitalia. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know what to say at that point. You know, it's... Uh, um, I think it's well. I think it's funny and sad, and I don't think it's funny because I think it's funny, ha ha, necessarily. I just think, man, if if you ever wanted to see debauchery in action, if there was any doubt that people are sinful by nature, just turn on the TV and watch something like that. I think. And what they do to themselves, I'm really torn on this. I've, I've even considered calling Hannity and asking him about this. And and that is we as Republicans and conservatives haven't seen this sea of red in decades. It's one of the most powerful Republican governments we've ever had in the history of our government. And – a lot of it has been self-inflicted by the Democrats in terms of how they act, what they say. Um, this whole election was a good example where it was Trump is this and Trump is this and Trump is this and basically painted him out to be a racist, a misogynist, and a sexist. And then he gets an office and appoints women and blacks to his cabinet. So cross that off your list. I think – what it does, though, for the Dems is it certainly doesn't help their case. People get tired of the hate rhetoric that is thrown around, especially strongly on the left side. People get tired of seeing women voicing their opinions by blowing up the White House and walking around in vagina costumes. What is that all of – and protesting and destroying property. The Dems are not doing themselves any any favors here. So it's humorous in terms of the fact that they don't know that they're self-imploding every time they're represented in this kind of a way. 
And it's only going to make the sea of red larger within the government. So I'm torn. Do I tell them, hey, you need to stop doing this if you ever want hopes of taking back the government? Or do I just smile, nod my head, and keep my mouth shut because they're killing themselves in terms of future endeavors with the government? We could hold a strong Republican government for years and years and years to come as long as we can continue to see people protesting and and breaking stuff and burning cars when there's no reason to do so and women walking around in goofy costumes and weird bumper sticker slogans that have no no real sense of reality behind them. So I, I don't know, Nick. Um, when I see that kind of stuff, I'm torn. I, I, I want to shake my head and facepalm myself and go, what, what are you doing? And at the same time, I'm like, no, go ahead. That's good because it helps Republican cause. I think deep down what I want to do is pull these women aside and go, I want to talk to you about Jesus. <laughs> Let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about this guy. I think I think we need to have a chat about that. Ultimately, I wish I was there. I'd be handing standing on the sidelines handing out tracks to those people. But uh yeah, that's that's a that's a good case. You, you, I mean, it's it's a good point you bring up, Nick. What what do we do? Do we I mean, do we do something with this, Nick, or do we not do something with this? Uh, what, what I'm, I'm thinking two different things here. The first thing I'm thinking is I've heard so many people say Obama's legacy I was so concerned of can be summed up in three words, Donald J. Trump. That's his <laughs> legacy. And the second thing is, we know what we do. I can think of what Greg Coker has said before. If your opponent is making a fool of themselves, get out of the way. <laughs> that's, that is actually, that's excellent. I think that's precisely where we are in today's society. The the Dems are not doing themselves any favor by putting out fake news or dressing up the way they do or just any of the actions that they're participating in right now. And you're right. I, I think it's easier to just kind of smile, nod your head, wave, and then do just kind of get out of the way. They're, they're certainly not helping themselves in that remark. And you know, something I also don't understand these women when they do this is that – they have these marches because, and they want to do something to make a statement so that they would be respected and taken seriously. And I don't think they did this time. We said, let's have a march where we march topless. And I'm thinking, ladies, if you want men to respect you and take you very, very seriously, you are doing the exact opposite of what you should be doing by that. <laughs> they, they, yeah, there's this disconnect. And we could take this a million different directions, but you know how logic and reason is no longer taught in schools? I think we're seeing the aftermath of that. I don't think any of these women that do this kind of stuff, like I'm going to march down the middle of the street topless to show what a strong, powerful woman I am. It couldn't send a more opposite message to those watching and how you come up with the idea that that's a logical, reasonable way to show your power and your strength as a woman is beyond me. And so we we continue to see the decline of society in one way. And, and in some cases, you know, it's easy to focus on the negative, but you see then the other side 
it only emboldens the other side. I'm not so sure that Christians haven't become more emboldened in the last couple years based on the high level of debauchery we've seen within society. And I do believe that we're going to see a real outpouring of Christians now that Trump is in the White House because we feel like we're not going to be sent to jail for saying it anymore. You know, there's this underlying theme under the uh, Obama administration where, I don't know, I'll be honest, I was a little scared sometimes to to be very proactive in speaking out about certain things for fear that, well, I don't know, you know, I don't, the way this government's going, a lot of pastors were, were going to have to be very careful about what they were saying, and there are already cases that can be pointed to. But um, the women that are trying to march or protest for whatever reason, I'm always surprised at how they get there. Like in their minds, at what point do you think this actually forwards your agenda in a way that people will take you seriously? I think, yeah, I, I think um, I think once again, it's just back to kind of the state of the world that we live in, Nick. You know, I, I think it's quite ironic, in fact, because if women say they don't want to be used in such, but abortion is one of the greatest things that helps them to be used because if that's allowed and the guys can say, hey, I can go, I can sleep with this woman, I can have my way. If she gets pregnant where she just has an abortion and hey, I'm good. Before that would have been, you know, this lady could get pregnant. I could be stuck paying child support for the rest of my life. I'm not so much into that. Yeah, it, it, it definitely has been freeing from a sex perspective. And I don't think anybody, especially in the apologetic world, nobody's going to argue about how big a role sex plays in today's society. Um, I think from a female perspective, a female rights perspective, nonetheless, I always find it difficult to kind of rationalize for myself how they can be in favor of women's rights and not understand that they're killing future women. How can you be in favor of women's rights but what you're killing inside the womb is potentially going to be a woman someday, and where are their rights then? I think it'd be good for us to clarify that point and say that if we just change it to female rights, there's no potential there. That is an actual female right there in the womb who's going to be a ch- child, who is a child, Will be a toddler and then go through all the stages to become a woman. There's no other trajectory. I mean, when a female comes out, it's not that, well, you know, give it a few years, maybe this one will become a man. <laughs> no, they, they, be, they seem to always become women. <laughs> well, well, in today's world, I mean, they all become women unless they identify as something else. <laughs> but that's a completely different topic. Yes, you're right. I would like to see, and this is, and I, I like what you did there with the female thing. Actually, when I talk to my feminist friends, um, I do frame it in exactly that way. I say, what about female rights? I don't necessarily call them women's rights. I say female rights. And then I actually will try to, if we get into the discussion, I try to walk it backwards because they'll say, well, what do you mean by female rights? It's women's rights. And I said, yeah, but I mean, are you going to call an eight-year-old girl a woman? Or, and, and does she have, I mean, do you want her to have the kind of rights you have, or does she not have rights until she goes through some sort of 
rites of passage? Is there maybe some sort of a test she's got to take to become a woman? How does that work? And then they see the logic and they go, well, no, I guess you're right. No, eight-year-old female rights. And then you're right. Then I can back them up into all the way into the, the womb type scenario where I say, well, female rights would apply then to the unborn as well. And as a strategy for those listening out there, that's that's not a bad strategy to take. If you can move it away from women's rights to what you did, Nick, female rights, you can then back that female rights thing up into the teenagers, the adolescents, the toddlers, the babies, and then, of course, back into the womb. You know, we, I was telling you about how, uh, how abortion neighbors women to be used so much. I fought back to something that... I actually comment on because this was being talked about a lot in the press. A guy named Ben Sherman wrote an article back on July 3rd, 2013 about how HB2 hurts Texas men who like women. This is a big debate going on in Texas. And his final point for this was, your sex life is at stake. Can you think of anything that kills the vibe faster than a woman doing a back alley abortion? Making abortion essentially inaccessible in Texas where add an anxiety to sex or drastically undercut its joys. And don't be surprised if casual sex outside of relationships becomes far more difficult to come by. Thank you for making a case for us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So the guy's pro-life. Yay. <laughs> he doesn't know it. <laughs> no, I think you're right. He painted that very, very nicely. If, if, you, if you can make – and you know what, really? Let's – okay. So if you can make – abortions illegal and you force them into some sort of back alley of whatever that means that that doesn't even have any real tense no no woman lays down in an alley behind the dumpster and has some guy do an abortion on her she still finds a clinic or some guy that's doing it someplace it, the back alley thing is i don't even know why they use that it's just a scare tactic but you're right if, if we can if we can get rid of the abortions it does force women to, to have second thoughts. It forces men, more importantly, to have second thoughts. And we leave the men out of this discussion a lot because when we think of abortion, we think of women and the baby inside the woman's womb. But there's a man involved with this too. And when the pain that the woman has to go through emotionally is pain that men have to go through when they figure out, you know what, I killed my child and they have to deal with this as well. And it would help – Number one, it would help them to maybe second guess, uh, is this really – I mean we know what the consequences potentially are of what we're about to do. Maybe we should rethink that. Maybe I should rethink that. Maybe we should call this off for a while. Uh, I do think it has that kind of a, a stemming effect on it. In addition, we just have to ask the question, should we as a country – just because we're trying to avoid back alley abortions, is that does that mean we as a country should then become advocates for killing babies? I I, I don't see how one follows from another. It doesn't make any sense. I actually posted comments back when that was going on, so if anyone wants to look at the story, you can find mine. And I pointed out the first one said, "No, Ben, you don't like women, really. You don't. You like sex, and women are just a tool you use." I said, "But you know what?" If you want to get sex and get to have it all your life, I'm going to tell you a secret that you can use to get that sex. Get married. You can have it with one person for the rest of your life, and they are there. You can rely on them. You can count on them, and you grow in that relationship more and more, and things get better and better. So if you really love women, 
and you really enjoy sex, get married. It works great. Yeah, I, I, I love how you brought that back. Um, it, make sure you put a link in maybe in our in, in, in our podcast or or let people know exactly where that's at because I would actually be interested in, in, in kind of thumbing through some of your uh, comments as well. Um, I like how you kind of brought that back around to what we should all be focused on. I mean, you and I have been talking so much this last hour on abortion and rights and marches and and costumes of ill repute. <laughs> and I think what we need to remember is these women, these these women that have had abortions, not ones that are in favor of abortion but have never actually done it. But these women that have had abortions, most of them, if not all of them, they're hurting. They're they're going through a really, really tough time. A lot of them have come to terms with what they did. How can you not see a little girl running around at three and not think my kid would be that age if I'd have just not gotten that abortion. And that first and foremost has to be what we as Christians, we as apologists, we as followers of Christ remember first and foremost is that we need to love these women. We need to just pull them in, show them love and compassion, let them know that there just is no judgment from our side on this thing, and engage with them in conversation about stuff, listen to their pain, uh, allow them to voice their concerns over what has been done without firing down the the the, the rain of brimstone on top of them, and 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 bring them then back to to the real point of why we need to. This discussion is so important, and that is that is Christ. That is the gospel. Bring them right back to the gospel. Well, we're getting close to the second hour. I'd like to go ahead and start also with talking about something else that's been done this week. That's been news that came out that Trump was issuing an executive order to defund Planned Parenthood. What are your thoughts when you hear that? Well, it makes me ecstatic. I mean, I said earlier in the in the uh, in the conversation, I didn't really know what we were getting with Trump. You know, this loud, boisterous, in-your-face, interrupting people all the time kind of guy claimed, you know, that he was a Christian and kind of said he was uh, that he read his Bible, went to church, but where's the fruit? There was none there. And so it, it really gave me cause to be concerned with what we were going to get ourselves into. There was no fruit there whatsoever early on. And so when he got into office, like I said, we knew what we were – I knew. I knew what we were getting with Hillary. I didn't know what we were getting with Trump, and I was willing to take that chance just in case maybe he was telling the truth. And now we're seeing it. He really was, I believe now, telling the truth. He stepped in. He defund International Planned Parenthood, which isn't it's, – it's, it's always done. When a Republican takes office, he enacts this. Uh, he gets he gets rid of this this Planned Parenthood funding overseas. When the Democrats get in, they cut it out, and they're like, "No, nope, go ahead and fund the overseas stuff." So it always happens, but it's a good first start by Trump to say, "Listen, we're stopping this." That's a great first start if you're looking for any kind of glimmer of hope here from our new president. I was ecstatic at the fact that he went ahead and made this first step. And it at least shows us that there's some sort of a commitment there from the Trump administration 
in maybe putting an end to all of this at some point down the road. Well, I'd like to remind you when you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, this week I have Brian Johnson with me talking about abortion. And so next month we're going to get back to more regular flow, different topics and such. And we got a interesting topic. We've had the same guest on before talking about the same kind of thing. But last year we saw a book and a movie came out that is from a phenomenon that was nearly and been nearly a decade since we'd heard anything. And those books were Harry Potter and the Cursed Child and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And the, this book and this movie sold exceptionally well, which gave the message immediately, Pottermania is not dead. Well, what do we Christians do about it? Because there are a lot of questions about the series some Christians are really against, some are very supportive, what do we do? Well, I'm having my friend John Granger come back on. He's known as Hogwarts Professor. He's a, he's a very, very well educated in the classics. And he sees this as a great time for Christians to embrace this. And he'll be telling us about why. We're going to be looking a lot at his book also, How Harry Cast His Spell, which shows, in his opinion, the part of books in the Christian tradition. Is this a case? Well, I'll be questioning him next week on this. So, next week, John Granger will be my guest talking about Pottermania. But now, let's get back to Brian Johnson here. Now, there was another story I broke. I saw Tom Gilson of just showing it. I think it was with a stream and such. And I even heard it talked about on Hannity the other day with uh, several Planned Parenthoods called and asked if they provide prenatal care, and they said no. Well, I think this, and, and this goes back to the investigation that they did. Um, I can't remember the group that did it, but they did a whole investigation on Planned Parenthood, and the, kind of the guys that you get up front isn't necessarily what's going on behind the scenes, and more and more of this is being exposed um, as we as we push forward. I don't think there's any big secret, what Planned Parenthood is really all about, what their true, kind of their true purpose is. If you if you take away abortion from Planned Parenthood, you're left with, what, a, thousands and thousands of different clinics all over the United States that don't call themselves Planned Parenthood. They all do exactly the same thing. The one that really sets Planned Parenthood apart is that little thing called abortion, and I believe there's a whole lot of money being exchanged behind the scenes in, in terms of this. And so to claim that, well, we do this care and we do this care, it's probably true. And in most cases, I think they probably do that kind of care. But it comes back to – Alan Schleeman does a really good job of illustrating this <clears> – <throat> There's only one question and one question only you have to answer when it comes to abortion, and that is, what is the unborn? One and one question only. Don't get sidetracked by all the rest. Just keep it on that main focus, and that's that's really that's really where you need to be. And this is the same thing here. Um, what really should we, as a country, should we be funding a organization that we know is killing humans just because they 
you know, occasionally do prenatal care or don't do prenatal care or they give out this or they give out that. I think as a country, there's a bigger moral dilemma that's going on here in which I believe our current administration understands they get it. They see the bigger tactic here. The left is stuck. They're, there really is no good argument, to be quite honest, as to why we shouldn't defund Planned Parenthood. I think they know this. I think they recognize this, but it isn't going to stop them from fighting for the agenda that they want, which is abortion. And so they come up with these ideas like what you're presenting here. We need prenatal care. What are we going to do if Planned Parenthood isn't around to give away prenatal care? And they they trump forward a couple of women that are like, I don't know where I'd be if if Planned Parenthood hadn't been there to give me this exam or that exam or whatever the case is, in an attempt to kind of make an emotional plea to the people, which is what we're all built on. And if you're an apologist, you know that in most cases there's an emotional argument and there's an intellectual argument. And what we need to identify is both the emotional argument, the in, but also the intellectual argument and try to find the logic and the reason behind why we do what we do. And I think that's where we're at with with Planned Parenthood. I think everybody under fully understands the intellectual nature of this, and they know it's wrong, but it's the emotional side of it. But that's who we are as a party. That's who we are as a uh, like a women's right group that that defines us. If we somehow lose Planned Parenthood, we we're going to start to lose our identity of who we are and what makes us strong, powerful women. And I'm not so sure that doesn't play into some of this too when it comes to the Planned Parenthood. Um, the, when it comes to the Planned Parenthood um, issue. Yeah, I was just <clears throat> looking it up while you were talking. I think the group was the Center for Medical Progress. That's exactly what it was. Yep. Yep, that's exactly what it was. I mean, most of us, when we saw those videos and heard them talk about for the first time, we, were, we weren't very shocked. The only thing shocking to us was, wow, they actually admitted it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I think this was one of the very first times where reality was brought on as perception. The perception was always what reality was, but we hadn't seen the reality of it. And I think they brought to light the actual reality of it. Some of those videos, if you guys haven't watched it, you really need to go in, especially the videos where they visit the actual abortion clinics themselves. And you can see the pieces and parts laying on a tray on a table after an abortion has taken place. And they're, they're fiddling through it with their with their instruments, and they're like, yeah, that looks like a foot. Yeah, that looks – I mean, they know what they're doing. There isn't any big surprise here. It's absolutely disgusting to us when you see it. But you're right. I think it, we always knew what was going on. It was just a matter of, well, never really seen the evidence, and they brought that to light. Um, I really appreciated them doing it. But, I mean, Nick, you know that was all heavily, heavily edited. That was, That was just – all heavily edited uh, uh, in order to in some big conspiracy oh, yeah. kind of theory to try to get get at Planned Parenthood. That's what the other side's saying because they really don't. I mean, where do you go with that, really? I mean, when the truth is exposed, there really isn't anything more you can do but try to diminish it, 
try to somehow refute it. But yeah, I, I think, boy, that was, if you guys haven't watched that series and you're listening to this, you need to take some time and kind of work your way through some of those videos because there was a lot of very, very interesting stuff that was revealed in those videos. And, um, you know, once again, it, it just goes back to our sinful natures. It's, it's, it's exposed in, in those, in those videos itself. I, I really think Planned Parenthood's on its last leg. Um, if I remember right, they passed, they did pass a law to defund Planned Parenthood and got to Obama's desk and he's like, yeah, not so much. And he vetoed it. But that won't happen this time. I think they'll push it through the House and the Senate. It'll it'll make it to Trump's desk, and I firmly believe he's going to sign that immediately. Yeah. yeah. When, when you were talking about feminism, <clears throat> just it, it just blows my mind thinking about that. This is what's going on. That we're, we're not really thinking about these things anymore. I was thinking about uh, just a couple of days or so ago. I watched an old debate of a. Uh, Abdu Murray versus John Loftus, which mm-hmm. in, in that case it wasn't very debate because you know, it was John Loftus. <laughs> right. <laughs> and John Loftus saying, We know all these things better because we live in the age of information. And Abdu Murray Gavin said, Yes, we do live in the age of information. We also live in the age of misinformation. <clears throat> and mm. he quoted uh, how Tim McGrew has said, that April Fool's Day is the only day of the year where everyone checks something on the, they read on the internet before they share it anywhere else. <laughs> and it's entirely true because we live in an age when Hannity was on yesterday, he had an atheist on a show trying to defend Planned Parenthood and asked, does, does Planned Parenthood provide prenatal care? Yes, Planned Parenthood provides prenatal care. Have you ever looked into this before? Are you asking me, have I ever looked into it? No, I'm, I, was, I want to ask this if you say, have you ever looked into it? I mean, the, the, the whole story going on in the news you know, this week have been Planned Parenthood does not provide prenatal care. It's like, we, we have to tell oh, the party right. line and say this, but we're not even going to bother looking into the question because the age of misinformation. <laughs> I think it's, uh, boy, that's, it's, such a difficult topic. Um, yeah, I mean, the internet is such a good thing, and the internet is such a bad thing. Uh, it's it's so hard to know what's true and what's not true. And I think if anybody's figured that out, it's the politicians. They get it. They know that, and they use that. All they have to say is if if the candidate A says yes, all they have to say is no. And who knows? Because when you go out on the internet, sometimes it is very difficult to discern which one is really telling the truth. And so you're right. You have this situation. And, and here's the deal. This is, this is really the bigger issue here. People will find their own truth. The, the confirmation bias, if you want something to be true, somebody on the internet is saying that it's true, whether it's completely false, doesn't make any difference. Somebody's saying that it's true. And if that's what you want to hear, you will find that and you will read that. And then you breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, I feel so much better. What I think is true is obviously what's true. Even though there are a thousand websites that say the exact opposite, that one, that one website 
it says what I want it to say. And that's, I think, the danger in our society. I have to say, this one's not related to abortion, but as soon as I hear that, I think of the obvious example of that, one of my favorite cases to use, Jesus mythicism. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a brilliant example of, of what we're talking about. When I talk to people, and they're so far gone, they're so anti-theist that they're like, Jesus never even existed. And they can pull up websites that say Jesus didn't exist. Do they have evidence? No, but they don't need it. The website said Jesus didn't exist. And if they can find some sort of historian, quote unquote, regardless of Carrier. Yeah, right, exactly. If they can find just one guy, just one guy in the world that has a his- history degree or something, all of a sudden debate over. You lose they win. They found this one guy who has a degree, and he says <laughs> Jesus didn't exist. And and it's 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 a uh, like I said, it's it's a such a internet is such a good thing, and it's such a bad thing. But when you emotionally are attached to an idea, and this is what we see as apologists all the time within non-believers, when you're emotionally attached to an idea, such as anti-theism, basically, you will find anything and everything you need to to confirm that worldview. Romans... There are a lot of believers who would do the exact same thing, sadly. Oh, no, yeah. In all fairness, you're absolutely right. There are... Yeah, it it's it's not a it's not an atheist thing, and it's not a Christian thing. It's a people thing. People do that, and it doesn't matter from what what place you come from, what religion you are. That's a people thing. Mm-hmm. In and uh, I, I I got a good a good analysis for you here. I have a friend in town who's a psychologist, and he attended a seminar one time. And they were discussing exactly this concept, and this is how it was explained to him at the conference. And and, and, and this will give you a good overview. I'm not going to get this exactly right, but people tend to equate being right with life and being wrong with death. Mm -hmm. So if you're right – that's living, that's life, that's that's the side you want to be on. If you're wrong, you must commit ritual suicide. Right, right, right. It's like it's like it, if you're wrong, that's like death. That's really bad. And when put into a struggle, people will fight for life. They'll try to stay alive. They'll do whatever is necessary to try to make it through that issue and 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 keep life and stay alive. And so the battle starts when you start to challenge their ideas and challenge their worldviews, challenge what they believe is right. They hang on to it as though it's life, and that's what we would then call maybe cognitive dissonance, where they, they know what you're saying makes sense. They get it. They can see it, but that means accepting that they're wrong. And that's death, and they can't accept death. They got to fight for life, and so we see this struggle within our society today, 
And it's no more evident than to us who are apologists and we engage in these kinds of discussions and topics and conversations and debates all the time where the other person, if they're so stuck in what they think, and most of them are, not being just a religious thing but a people thing, it's hard to get them to move. I mean try to, con- try to convince a Calvinist that Molinism's right. You, we see it in our own world. Try to try to convince some young earth creationists, which I am one. I'm a young earth creationist, but I'm not built this way. But try to convince some young earth creationists that it's an old earth. Oh, man, you think you'd started World War Three and don't bring it up around the table during the holidays or forget it. Don't mention inerrancy as well. Oh, right. Yeah. Now you're talking about cranberries being thrown, dude. Now those are fighting words right there. You know, it's it's a people thing. I, I think you're right, and so there's that struggle, of course, to try to uh, to try to work through as we navigate all of this. So bring that back around to abortion. People that are pro-choice, people that are pro-life, here you have that issue. Now, without a doubt, let's just be let's just be honest here. The pro-life people are right. When a human sperm fertilizes a human egg, you always get a human. It's not a potential human. Some people will say, well, it's a potential human. Well, if it's, if it's a potential human, then it's potentially something else. So I always ask them, what, other, what, what else could it be? Is it potentially a jellyfish? Maybe is it potentially a chicken or potentially a puppy? I mean, kids would love that. But Maybe it's potentially a dragon. Right. Is it potentially a dragon if it's, not, if it's only potentially a human? And then they kind of see – they kind of see the logic in that as well, but oh man, they, they can't they can't let go. They got to they got to struggle for life, and so yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know, Nick. How how do we navigate? How do we navigate that with with the people that's in our lives that are so stuck in one idea? I, I often tell people about different techniques for evangelism. I have to say, I'm sorry, people, but there is no silver bullet. For evangelism or apologetics, there is nothing you can say or go out there, and it will work on every single person you meet. It yeah. depends on the person, and you know if a person is not willing to work for you and listen to an argument or anything else that goes against their worldview and such, they're not willing, and there's nothing you can do about it, and you have to accept that. Yeah, I, I think you're right. In 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 my years of evangelizing. Uh, I think what I've learned the most is it's not even really my responsibility. My responsibility is to talk to that person, engage them in love and compassion, uh, try to bring them around to a point where I can exp- where I can give them the gospel, and then it's out of my hands. That's up to the Holy Spirit. It's it's really the the job of the Holy Spirit to to change them, to work on them, to work in them. And I look at as as at apologists as the the seed layers. We're the ones that just plant the seeds in people. Some most of the time, we're not the ones that harvest it. And I'm okay with that. I've come to terms with that. It's it's my job to plant that seed, give them the gospel, find a way to let's get around to the gospel, let's plant that seed, and then let the Holy Spirit work on them. And I'll tell you what. When you kind of take that kind of an approach, it takes all the pressure off of you. I don't have to feel nervous about whether or not they did or didn't get saved when they walk away because I can't follow them around for the rest of my life and find out what happens there. You just 
you just let God do his job. You let the Holy Spirit work within that person and, um, and hope that somewhere down the road, you know, sometime when I'm gone, I'll get to talk with them in heaven and, and say, and, and have them say, hey, you know what? Remember that one talk you gave to me on the street that one day? Yeah, well, I'm here. So, um, yeah, so I think you're right. I'd like to remind everyone right now, you're listening to a Deeper Waters podcast. Everything we do here is listener supported. People like you, yes, you, you matter. We need you, we want you, your support means a lot to us. I want to encourage you now to go to my website where, now if you're driving right now, please hold on if you're driving. But when you get home, go to deeperwatersapologetics.com and you can see my site there. And there's a link on the side to help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And you go in and you click on that and it takes you to the site of Risen Jesus, a ministry of Mike Lacona. You're at the right place. That's my father-in-law, and his wife is my mother-in-law, obviously. They handle donations for us. His wife, Debbie, is a financial guru, accountant specializing in clergy taxes for whole shebang. And she handles that for us, like I said. And she makes sure everything is tax-deductible, and we get every penny. I really encourage you to do that. If you can be a weekly donor... That means even more to us. We really need your support. And, you know, if you can't donate that way, please at least go on iTunes and leave a positive review of a Deeper Waters podcast. I really love to see them. And you can also go to our bookstore, or go to Amazon, I should say. You can buy books that I've either written or co-written. Written include books such where it's only limited right now to... Uh, the book, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed, and Today's Christian. Remember our books I've co-written. Now that Michael Cohen's latest book is out, Defining Inerrancy, I think it's going to become even more important today. So I really recommend that one. There are others like Groundless or God and Natural Disasters. And there's yet another way to support us. We've got a ministry partner who sells jewelry in She's offered to sell some on our behalf. And guys, I got to tell you this. If you've been in a deep coma for a long time and have absolutely no clue, it's time you realize that women tend to like jewelry as a gift. They really do. I mean, my, my own wife has an allergy to knicker, so I have to be very careful what I get her. But she loves if she gets any sort of jewelry that doesn't have knicker in it that she can wear easily. Now, guys, go to that side of mine, for mine, and if you buy any jewelry for that lady in your life for Valentine's Day, 25% of what you purchase goes deeper waters. No extra charge. You just buy what you need. Boom, we get the donation. Now, as I encourage you, you can do this, and you can buy something to make up for that screw-up that you did recently. Yes, I know you did one recently. Or you can make up that screw-up that you're going to do in the near future. Yes, I know you're going to do one because I'm a husband, too. We do them. Um, I, I really just encourage you to do these things. It means so much to us. Now, Brian, do you have an organization or charity you like to see people donate to? Um, yeah, actually. Um, I'm part of South Dakota Apologetics. 
And uh, our ministry's been up and running for about a year and a half now, but you can find us at sdapologetics.com. You can find us on Facebook at South Dakota Apologetics. If you go to our website, um, you can also contribute to us there and allow us to continue to do some of the different functions we do, such as um, I do some – well, we actually do some podcasts. But more importantly, like in March, I'm speaking at one of the pregnancy centers around the area. Early April, we're going to be in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where we're bringing Alan Schleeman from Stand to Reason in for a one-day conference. And in late April, we are setting up – trying to set up currently a a debate – with the Iglesia Ni Cristo group, they have actually Gosh. yeah, they've actually purchased a small town near Rapid City, South Dakota, called Scenic, and we've engaged with them in a couple of different conversations, and they wanted to do a debate, so we're looking to do that if we can work out some. I think we're working on some video copyright laws right now. They had to get uh, permission from their. I don't know what he is in the Philippines, but like their head guy in the Philippines. But if that happens, we're bringing in James White, and we're going to discuss the person of Jesus and the Trinity, which would be super interesting. We will be recording that as well for any of you interested in seeing that. So we're extremely excited about that. So that's kind of our mission right now. And and uh, then, of course, we'll have more stuff coming up in the fall, maybe bring in Sean McDowell in town to do that kind of stuff. So anyway, if you'd like to donate to our cause uh, – any amount, five, ten bucks, just anything, would help us out immensely. And you can do that, as I said, at sdapologetics.com. I remember years ago on Theology Web, where I still do some debates and such, and I have my own section there. We had someone who was a member of the Ignatia de Cristo group, and this guy seemed to fall under the strategy of if you type things in caps, it makes the <laughs> argument more effective. I <laughs> I love those people. Like, dude, I'm I'm right here. You don't have to yell. I'm right here. <laughs> uh, no, this will be. This is going to be like a legit debate. We're, we've rented out a we've rented out a room. They're bringing in a lot of people. They're talking about bringing in maybe 300. So we're going to hopefully try to match that. And yeah, I'm really excited. Now let's get back to the uh, events of this past week. Now, if I'm understanding correctly, so you said you were in Washington this week weren't you oh i was not no 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 i was i was not in washington okay well we had by contrast to last week we had for march for life going on and as you know we had women and men out there marching dressed up as genitalia and talking about blowing up planned parenthoods and everything else and demanding government pay for everything oh i've got my facts wrong don't i I was just about to say, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> no, obviously the pro-life group was a little bit uh, different temperament. How about if we put it that way? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's definitely a different temperament. Once again, I, I think the dichotomy that we're seeing here in society is the left – is a lot more, oh, how would you say, um, colorful in the way that they present themselves in terms of protests and marches on a more highly percentage basis than what you'll find from the more conservative crowd. And I think we saw that very well illustrated 
in terms of not only post-election where they were protesting and and uh, destroying windows, but also in terms of just these marches. You know, I don't remember the um, the pro-choice necessarily march being violent where any cars were broken or windows bashed in. I remember that. But in terms of the people involved, I think you're right. It's just a lot more colorful in the way they pre- decided to present themselves. Um, and I think this gets down to to kind of uh, birds of a feather type of a thing. You see just a real dichotomy. And I, you know, I'm not telling anybody they don't already know there, but just a different group of people when when dealing with what we saw out of the uh, the life march. Yeah. What do you think when you hear that uh, Mike Pence spoke at the march? And it's my understanding this is the first time the sitting vice president spoke at the march. Pence was one of the biggest reasons I voted for Trump. If anybody was going to hopefully have some sort of an effect on Trump, I was really impressed that they had picked Pence to be that running mate. So when he spoke, wasn't a surprise that he spoke, but man, what a statement that made for the vice president to come forward on a right to life march, which you're right. I, I think I've, I've heard those same stats. It's the first time they've ever had a, a sitting vice president come and speak for the right to life. That for me, that was even bigger than Trump signing the uh, doing away with the Planned Parenthood overseas to have him as as well as some of the other people like Kellyanne Conway who spoke there as well. These are people that Trump has surrounded himself with and it would be highly unlikely that they would show up to do a, a march like this or do a talk like this and Trump isn't on board with what they're doing type thing. And I, th- I think uh, – yeah. At once again, one more reason for me to really start to like this administration at at this early stage of the game, because they're they're legit. They they put themselves out there during the campaign trail, mm-hmm. and and we're all trained like Pavlov's dog to expect that once they get into office, it won't be that way. Things are going to change. Promises. You hope at least some promises will be kept, but you expect that a lot of them won't. And man, I'll tell you what, Nick, so far so good. I'm really impressed with what this administration has done so far and the direction that they're headed. You know, I'm thinking about my wife, Allie, has asked me a few times in the past couple of months every now and then, if you could meet and talk with any one person today, who would you choose? And I've thought about it, and I thought, you know, it, it could be Tim to say something with me, like, I like, go, N.T. Wright. That would just be so awesome to get to meet N.T. Wright. But then I thought about it more practical. Everyone said, honey, if I could choose anyone, I'd choose Donald Trump. Really? Why? I said, well, honey, he's the most powerful man in the world. I know, leader of a free world, and, and he's got this place in the Republican Party. I'd sit down with him, and I'd just make sure of everything and talk to him about Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I think I'm in the same boat as you, except I think it wouldn't be right for me. I think I'd want to sit down. Well, there's a couple people. Um, I think I'd want to sit down with William Lane Craig. I think that would be a very interesting discussion, although I'm pretty sure I wouldn't understand most of the stuff that came out of his mouth. 
even though I love listening to him. You'd be surprised. Um, you can have a good conversation. <laughs> I think. I think so. I, 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 I think. I, I've done it before. <laughs> oh, very good. So yeah, you know what? I'll. I I, I know he's a very down to earth guy. I, I I love him. It's just he's he's brilliant. He really is a brilliant guy. I think John Lennox would be a whole lot of fun to sit down with. Um, I'd probably you know sit on his lap, tell him what I want for Christmas give him a big hug. He's just such a big teddy bear guy. It'd be hard not to, not to want to be with him. But ultimately, you're right. Donald Trump, right now at this point in time, if I could pick one person, it's definitely going to be Trump. He's the most powerful man, but I want to pick his mind. I want to know more about where are you really spiritually? And, and I would, because I'm so passionate about it, want to really engage him on the abortion side of things. One of those, listen, this will never leave this room, but I got to know where you're at with it. Are you looking to put people in place that will overturn Roe versus Wade? Do you understand that we're killing our children? Where are you in this argument? Do you, I mean, you're Trump. Do you really care what the pro-choice people bring forward or are you just going to do what's right? Uh, I would, I'm in the same boat as you. I would love to sit down with him and just pick his mind about a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So what do you think the message is at these pro-life groups and marches and such that really we need to be getting out to the people more? I don't know if there's any more that can be done. Um, people either see it or they don't. At this point, the arguments in favor of pro-life, and I, I've told my children this, I'm like, even though it's not about winning or losing an argument, I don't want to frame it this way. But at the same time, you as a pro-life advocate cannot not lose an argument or a discussion with someone who's pro-choice if you just are educated on the topic itself. And you un- and you understand the arguments, and you understand the rebuttals to the arguments. They're all so simple. They're so straightforward. It's it's a uh, it's so ridiculously one sided on this particular topic. It's not like who's the best quarterback of all time type thing. It's so ridiculously one-sided when it comes to the pro-choice, pro-life thing that you just can't go wrong. Um, I think in that vein, it is the education. Most people have no idea how to refute some of the points that are brought up from the pro-choice side, whether it's the old and tired arguments over and over of, you know, uh, back alley abortions. It's a woman's right. It's not a human. It's living off the mother, so on and so autonomy. Yeah, exactly. Go back to your previous podcast. Those guys broke that down brilliantly. Um, all of there isn't anything that they can bring up that there isn't a good, strong, logical answer for there's, there's, just nothing there that they can bring up that gets them off the hook in any way, shape, or form. However, most people, and we talked about this, here we come, full circle, at the very beginning of the podcast, we discussed people either A, aren't interested in this topic enough to go educate themselves, or B, aren't built that way. Like, we, you and I are built to just 
be kind of a, a bit more on the intellectual side. We like evidence. We like information. We like to learn how to take that information and apply it. Most people aren't built that way. But if we could do small things, like when I when I talk to people, I don't care if they get together 100 people in a room. I don't care if it's one person for coffee. If I can just teach that one person how to combat the typical things that are brought up and then refocus them into that one question, just one question, what is the unborn? If you can bring them back to that one question, you're in a very, very good position in terms of how do we get the pro-life message out? That's how we do it. We try to simplify it for people that don't want to spend hours and hours and hours learning every single rebuttal to every single argument, and we make it as easy as we can by funneling them into one question, what is the unborn? If you can keep the conversation focused there and not be drawn out by rabbit trails, you're in really, really good shape from a pro-life perspective. You know, I mean, you were talking about the way we're built and such. I can't really think that. I mean, probably after this, I'm going to go to the store and pick up some things for my wife and such. And I mean, you and I are probably kind of people that if we're in the checkout line, we practically would hope an argument would break out. So we could have something we could say. I mean, I, I have my, my book with me that's going to be some book about God, and I'm just waiting for the day when someone says to me, don't you know that's all a bunch of nonsense? And, and Oh, yeah, here it goes. I mean, when, when Peter Bogosian, who stars in The Fade now, talked about having his show, The Reason Whisperer, where they were going to go to churches and question Christians on what they believed, I was sort of thinking, hey, come to my church, keep those cameras rolling. This is going to be a show you will never forget if you come to my church. <laughs> this is a golden opportunity. This is what I want you to do. <laughs> I think um, I know exactly where you're coming from. I and I think this is kind of an apologetic type of thing. Um, it's something that obviously we as apologists have to be careful of. I did this early on. Um, first of all, I I look at apologetics like I do karate. If you take karate lessons for a long period of time, there comes a point where you're like, I wonder how good I am, and you're. You know, maybe walking around going, come on, somebody try something. Somebody try to hit me. Somebody try to pick a fight with me. Maybe I'll pick a fight with someone else just to find out how good I am. I want to try out my karate on them. And the truth is, I personally have, have not really taken any karate lessons. However, I've never had a fist fly out of nowhere at me either where I've needed karate lessons. So, uh, But apologetics is the same way. You learn this stuff and you know this stuff and you're so emboldened by this stuff and you do what you do. You're like, go ahead. Somebody challenge me. Somebody, anybody, just say Christianity is a joke. I dare you. It's like knock this battery off my shoulder. I dare you type commercial type stuff. You know, you're just ready at any moment's notice to pounce on anything because you want to you want to talk to people about it. But we do have to be careful. We do have to obviously be careful that we're not out there to just bludgeon people over the head with information and and walk away from it going, you know, drop the mic type thing. We got to remember that apologetics are used in conjunction with the gospel, and that is to get you to the gospel and to kind of use them to eliminate roadblocks. People are like, well, what about this? Well, here's your here's your problem of evil argument. So let's just 
Now, can we just move that argument out of the way? We're going to keep walking down the road here. What about this? Well, here's your cosmological argument. Okay, so let's just remove that barrier. Now, let's let's move a little closer to this person called Jesus. And, and, and that's kind of how we need to use that. But boy, what you're saying really rings with me because you're right. Sometimes you walk around with a book and you're just waiting for someone to go, you know that's a bunch of malarkey, don't you? <laughs> I, I say I don't really like to bludgeon people over head, but there, there is one exception to this, and people who see me on Facebook know when this happens, and that is if someone went after Ari and started giving her a very hard time for her faith and such or for anything else, I will show up and I will bludgeon them. <laughs> I will not hold back. I, I think people have watched me enough on Facebook say, if you go after Nick's wife, you had better be ready because he will show up and he will be angry and he will have no mercy on your soul. <laughs> you know I'm going to set up a fake account and troll you now. You know that, right? Oh, you, you better be careful. <laughs> <your back. laughs> <laughs> That's going to be so much fun. Just pull your strings. <laughs> well, back to what we are saying here also. I think it, we also have to include how we're treating the women and the men who who have to deal with abortion. I, I agree with what you said earlier about there's no condemnation. I think we need to show women, especially both sides, that yes, you know what? We roundly condemn abortion. Yes, you did do something wrong, and it is a serious wrong. But for serious wrongs, there is serious forgiveness as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, abortion needs to be – we need to tell the men and the women that go through abortions that it's not the unforgivable sin. It, 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 God looks at that like he does any other sin, and although it's maybe one of the more heinous ones according to man that you can commit, and that is killing or taking the life of someone else, especially – it's, I mean, it's got to be even more difficult when it comes down to the life of a child or a baby um, that that was your own baby type of a thing. I mean, I can't even be – I'm not going to pretend I know what these people are going through, but it's got to be an immense pain. But they need to be reminded that it's not the unforgivable sin. God looks at them like he does everybody else. Jesus paid that price on the cross and – when you come to him and you throw this at his feet and you say, I killed my child, how can you ever forgive me? They need to be reminded that God looks down at them and he goes, oh, is that all? Go ahead and bring it. I can handle that. I, I can handle more than that. That's, you, you got nothing. Go ahead. Bring that to me. Just put that at my feet. I'll take care of that for you. And I, I think we have to we have to redirect them because they will – and I don't know if we can change this, but they will beat themselves up for probably the rest of their life. A lot of these women, it takes them decades to forgive themselves for doing stuff like this once they've really recognized what they've done. But we can remind them, even if we've never been through that, we can remind them that it's not the unforgivable sin. God looks at that like he does all other sin and says, oh, really? Is that all? Oh, bring it. I got you. I was listening to Matt Hannity's show yesterday I was telling you about and how the abortion guests 
no matter how, you know, we just need more education and such. And part of me agrees and part of me disagrees, because part of me is just saying, I'm sorry, you don't need more education to know there's a connection between sex and babies. I think we all know about that connection. But I think what's needing more education is for us to really think more about how sex fits into this beforehand. And especially for Christian youth as well, we let them know very clearly sex is something reserved for marriage. Because you know, if we could have it down to that where people would actually get in their heads sexes for marriage and live that way we would have much less problem with abortion many many fewer STDs fewer broken homes everything yeah it even leads to a bigger problem than that I mean since we're on the topic of it and iron sharpens iron full disclosure I had sex before I was married I had sex before I met my wife and once I met my wife and we were married i it wasn't till i till then that i really started to understand god's design of one man one woman wait until you're married for the rest of your life type of a scenario i didn't get it until i was there and so you're right. I think it is important that we try to talk to our youth about it. I've talked to my kids about it, and I'm open with them. I say, you know, I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes. I had sex before I was married, and I have to tell you that I ultimately, I really, really regret it because there's a deeper, different emotional connection that you get with your with your spouse. Oh, yes. Through Yeah, through the action of sex that goes beyond just – going out on a date and going to a movie and holding hands and maybe that first kiss. That's – yeah, right. There's there's just this different connection. And I, I'm going to brag on my oldest son. He's, he's 25 now, but 24 just a year ago, just this last year, he got married to his girlfriend of seven years. And, and they didn't – they never lived together and they didn't have premarital sex. They decided they were going to do it right. They were going to wait and they did. And I told him, I said, you cannot even begin to understand how blessed you will be for making that decision, not only in the eyes of God, but in your relationship. Because now when you do finally have sex with your spouse, you can't even begin to imagine the deeper relationship you're about to have with that person. And I wish I had understood that and knew that before I got married. And I think, you know, once again, if we can get to our youth, as you're saying, if we can get to people about this sex thing that is so big in today's society and educate them better on it, um, I know that you're right. It, it, it'll lead to just a much more healthy relationship and a healthy marriage for a lot of people. And, and, and of course, it'll eliminate a lot of this abortion, uh, these abortion issues that we have to deal with today. Let's go back again for a circuit. Do you think you would have been as likely to have made that mistake? if the church had been educating you apologetics-wise? Oh, no way. No. No way. I mean, and that's one of those things where very conservative church, very conservative Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, once again, you didn't talk about sex. <gasps> that was just so taboo. That just wasn't brought up in my church. But it's part of 
it's part of life. It's, it's, it's just part of how things are nowadays. And in that case, I think the church needs, they have a choice. They can either avoid it altogether and the kids are going to find out all their own, or they can help maybe try to find a way to approach that in an apologetic way to kind of tell the kids, listen, you don't get this right now because you're 17 and your testosterone's running at 400% of what mine is at 45 right now. You don't get it, but you will. I promise you, if you listen to me and you just read, read in the Bible, the ultimate plan and God's design of one man, one woman, get married and stay that way forever, really, for the rest of your life. If you can, if you can just live by God's plan, he's right. He knows what he's talking about, and you'll be blessed for it. Yeah, I, I, dude, yeah, absolutely. It would have changed my college life a lot had I had that early education from the church. And by the way, a, a warning for people who are listening here, and just let you know what's coming in a couple of weeks. I'm going to have some a couple from my older ch- church back in Knoxville that were mentors for That's going to be our Valentine's Day episode. They... They taught a series called Marriage Moments. They have been married over 50 years. So they know something about it. And I, I waited until marriage. And my, my dad worked with some people and they heard that uh, I was getting married. And they were trying to him, oh, you know he's done it before. You know he's lying to you. Like, nope, he's not. He's waited. And indeed I had. And I, whenever I... See friends of mine who are men who are about to get married. I often go and talk with them and let them know about what's going to happen. And I always tell them something. Say, dude, you have no idea about this yet. You you tell me you love this woman in your life. I believe you. I know you do. But you also don't have a clue right now. And <laughs> whenever you get married, you're going to find out this changes everything. The way you think everything entirely. We come back and say, yeah, you are right. It does change things. And I still can say, yep, things are changed. And you still don't have a clue. Give it a few years. And right now, I think I could say, I still don't have a clue. Give it a few years and let's see what happens for me too. (laughs) Well, I'm coming up on 20 years of marital bliss with my with my wife, no, we've we've definitely had our troubles. We've definitely been through our ups and downs. But uh, man, I can't tell you after twenty years how happy I am that that we made it work. That we uh, and 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 a big part of it came down to the fact that you know when I didn't always have her and she didn't always have me, we both always had God, and it was working. It was us working towards our relationship with God that brought us closer together. And it's been six and a half years for us. It'll be seven in July. And when she starts telling me about how I'm different from other guys and such way I treat her, I just say, it's because I, I've really thought a lot about these issues and because Jesus changes everything. I mean, I have a men's group just for Christian men who are married or engaged, or dating, or just hoping to marry, and it's all the same thing. Let's learn how to love our wives. If we're married, we're learning how to love them right now. If we're not married, you're going to learn how to love your future wife. God bless you for that. That's a fantastic ministry that you've got there, Nick. I commend you for putting that on, because it is. You know, We as Christian men, uh, we need to learn how to pray for our wives. We need to pray for our families. If you're going to be 
uh, you need to be the, the the head of of the family. Doesn't mean that you have to be in control of every little tiny thing that goes on, but you do need to step up and be the head of the of the family. And stats prove. Listen, if if the father is a Christian, there's like a 78% chance that the kids will end up being Christian as well. That number drops precipitously if the father is not Christian, but the mother is. It's amazing how the male role model within the family affects things within the family. So I would continue and I would encourage you to continue with that ministry and, and try to encourage the other men out there that are listening to this that you need to – you know, you need to remain strong with God, and and, you, and you'll be blessed for that. Your whole family will be blessed for that. Ron, before the show started, I didn't even realize that somehow you'd skip being on my friends list on Facebook. And so I made sure to correct that immediately. But now you're on. I think one thing you're fine with me is every day, except Sunday, when I take a break from posting on Facebook and such, every day I'm going to post some picture some image from a group like say a husband revolution or unveiled wife or something like that that's a marriage picture and if Ari wasn't taking a sabbatical from Facebook right now I tag her in it and then <laughs> later on that, that same morning every day I will post some message special about how I love my wife and such and some people say don't you think that, that kind of thing should be private? And say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. There are many things I will say to her in private you are never, ever hear. But the fact that I love my wife deeply and I cherish her, that should not be private at all. That should be very public. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that's fantastic. There's absolutely nothing wrong. Uh, my parents are you know, a bit old school, so they might also think, well, that might be kind of private. But I, I don't know. I think, I think we live in a different society. I think it's fantastic that you outwardly express your love for your wife. I think that does a lot of things. And one of the things it does is it makes sure that other people out there understand exactly where you are with your wife. So there is no doubt. Yep. That's a good thing, my friend. And it holds me accountable and pushes me to go further. And like I said, everything I put is decent. It's not like we're going out in public and taking each other's clothes off or something. No, <laughs> that would be things, awkward. Yeah, there are many things that are private. There are many things I will say in private I will never say on Facebook. But I, I want to be that if you come to my page, you know two things. You know I love Jesus. You know I love Ari. If you know those two things, you know enough about me. I think that's fantastic. I love the work that you're doing, Nick. I really appreciate the podcast that you do, and I just want to thank you for allowing me to be a, a guest on your uh, on your show. I don't have quite the cerebral knowledge that the other guys had, but uh, um, uh, but I do appreciate being being selected. Thank you. I, I do think it's been helpful because we've talked about so much going on in politics. And we especially got to talk about the difference that having a good apologetic background makes to this. I mean, your own statement about how you went up struggled with doubt, you would have avoided sex before marriage. I, mean, I didn't ask you to say those kinds of things. It's just that's the facts. That's what it is. And I think people really need to hear that, especially pastors listening, wondering if they should bother teach their, church, teach their youth about apologetics in the church. Listen, I do... I now speak um, on occasion. My my son, my oldest son, is is the one in charge of our youth group at our church, and he brings me in to do talks every now and then. And number one, I am always amazed at how 
thirsty these kids are for actual evidence of Christianity. We live in such a world where they're like science this and science that and oh yeah, what about the evidence type stuff. You can't turn on the TV without seeing some sort of copper detective show, show me the evidence. Kids are hungry for that at this age and they just drink it in like nectar when you give it to them. They love knowing more about why they believe what they believe. So I'm with you. Keep pushing those pastors to put that apologetic stuff in their churches. Ron, we have come to the end, though. Do you have a blog, website, and email way people can get in touch with you if you want to find out more? They can find out more at that uh, com. They can uh, just go there, get a, or send me an email, and uh, at sdapologetics at gmail. Com if they want to know more about us. If you're in and around the Rapid City, South Dakota area, whether that's anywhere in South Dakota or Wyoming, kind of this area, feel free to get in contact with us. Our whole group does talks. We do it at no charge, and I would love to come uh, see you and, and maybe do a couple classes for you. We do talks on all kinds of different topics. Do you have a final message you'd like to leave with the Deepwater's audience today? Yeah, guys, listen, we're all apologists. There's a good reason most of you are probably listening to this because you are involved with apologetics or or have a heart for apologetics. Let me just remind you that um, I might be a bit biased here, but we are a major, major part of the of Christianity. I don't need to probably tell most of you this, but we know that there are a lot of things, a lot of knowledge that we have that was bestowed upon us through apologetics that a lot of pastors out there don't have. They just never learned it in seminary, and they just haven't picked it up along the way because they're so busy taking care of their of their flock. And so I would encourage you guys to get involved with your local areas and, and set up classes at your church if you're not already doing it. And don't compare yourselves to the William Lane Craigs or those guys, because what you know, what you have is probably more than 90% of your congregation knows at this point. Be a servant, be a disciple for Jesus and get involved in some way. Don't, as I said, bludgeon people over the head with things. Come at them from love and compassion. But our direction here, especially within South Dakota Apologetics, is to better educate Christians to understand why they believe what they believe. It's difficult sometimes to get through to atheists, but Christians are already on your side. They're in your court. All you need to do is teach them how to better understand why they believe what they believe so that they can go out and make disciples of all nations. So let me encourage everybody listening to just stay the course, stay the course, and become uh, a part of your church, become a part of your community through, through the apologetics outreach. Matt Brian, it's been very great having you on here. Thank you for coming, and hopefully we'll see you again sometime. I hope we get that chance. Well, I can mind everyone that next week, John Granger is my guest, talking about Protomania in his book, How Harry Cast His Spell. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.